On March 31st, the National Council of Young Israel held a dinner in Midtown Manhattan. An article by Ben Sales, released by the JTA, described it as effectively a Trump rally. My first reaction was to try to confirm that this was an accurate depiction, and then to record a podcast explaining why I thought that this was extremely inappropriate. After considering the issue, however, I instead invited the chairman of the dinner, Rabbi Yechesko Moskowitz, to join me on the show to share his perspective. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I do not have ambivalent feelings about President Donald Trump. I can't stand the guy. I think he's single-handedly undermined political and civil discourse in the Western world to the degree that would be impressive if it weren't so insidious. He's a bully. He's cruel. He's uncouth. He's immoral. He's unethical. And these qualities, sadly, seem to have helped him in his bid for election. And that's changed the calculus of political competition perhaps forever. The fact that many Orthodox Jews believe that his policies are wonderful doesn't change my opinion about his character. Personally, I don't particularly like most of his policies either. Yes, he has implemented policies that demonstrate an affinity for Israel in general and for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in particular. Whether his stance regarding Israel is actually a positive vis-a-vis Israel's long-term goals is, I believe, open to question. And perhaps in a later podcast, I'll explain why I do not unequivocally support Trump's Israel policies even though I generally agree with them in theory. But that's not my point today. My point is that even if his policies are in fact good, even if his policies are wonderful, we as religious Jews need to make a distinction between support for the things he does and supporting a person who is charitably characterized as a maneuver, that is, a disgusting human being. When we start wearing MAGA hats or kippot with the name Trump on them, We are coming close to celebrating a human being rather than his policies. And for us Orthodox Jews, supporting this human being should be a big problem. We have to represent and celebrate values that we care about. Kindness, civility, justice, generosity. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that Democrats or Republicans have a monopoly on these values. In fact, I generally consider myself a conservative on many issues and would more often than not relate to moderate Republicans rather than to Democratic candidates. But again, I'm not talking about policies today. I'm talking about giving kavod, respect, to a person who demonstrates the antithesis of these values in his personal conduct. But rather than pontificate about my feelings, I decided to speak to Rabbi Yecheskel Moskowitz, a policy consultant on Middle Eastern affairs for several prominent think tanks and elected officials, an active member of the Orthodox community, and most relevant to this discussion, the chairman of the Young Israel Dinner I referenced a few moments ago. I didn't want to debate Rabbi Moskowitz, or Chesky as he asked me to call him, but instead to ask my questions in a respectful manner and to give him the opportunity to respond as he sees fit. While I strongly disagree with many of his positions, I appreciated that we had a respectful and hopefully fruitful dialogue about numerous issues. I largely let him express his opinion without comment, 
and was pleased that the two of us were able to engage in a positive conversation, even as we differ, and differ seriously, on numerous important issues. I'll just mention that apart from American politics, we talked a bit about the young Israel's public support for Prime Minister Netanyahu's brokering of the deal, allowing Otsma Yehudit to run as part of Bayit Yehudi, or the National Religious Party. Osma Yehudit, as is well known by now, is run by people with Kahanist sympathies. Now, while Rabbi Moskowitz sees the young Israel's public support as supporting freedom of speech, given that the Supreme Court in Israel did not prohibit Otsma from running, I think Rabbi Moskowitz is missing the point that even if this party is allowed to run, as most parties obviously should in a democracy, we as religious Jews should be sickened that the national religious parties would join forces with them. This isn't about asking for that merger to be illegal. It's about condemning the national religious parties ignoring Torah values for the sake of this political expediency. Obviously, Rabbi Moskowitz doesn't see it that way, as you'll hear in the interview. Moreover, he thinks that it's a mistake for people to make public statements in writing condemning the merger, as such statements undermine Israeli democracy. I think, once again, that he's conflating allowing a person or party to run with supporting that particular party. To me, the real undermining of democracy is saying that someone shouldn't write about these matters. The ultimate sign of a strong democracy is a powerful and open marketplace of ideas, suggesting that we should keep our mouths shut just because someone is allowed legally to run or out of fear for anti-Semitism is, to me, very short-sighted. It's also, to me, somewhat hypocritical. The young Israel can support it, but the rabbis from the Gush can't say that they don't. Once again, as you'll hear, Rabbi Moskowitz clearly does not see it that way. One final point before launching into the interview. You'll hear that I seem fixated on two particular tweets of Trump out of the thousands that he has tweeted. In particular, two cases where he trashed local union leaders because, in one case, the leader had the temerity to say that Trump lied, even though the union leader was actually correct. And in another case, where a GM plant was going to be shuttered and a union leader had been unable to stop it even though he had tried and had even tried contacting the president to help him in this. You might wonder why these two particular cases occupy my attention, as it's true that there are hundreds of moments where Trump's bullying comes to the fore. But these cases, in my mind, are particularly heartbreaking because they are situations where Trump, to save his own reputation, attacks not politicians but regular people who have essentially no power and no voice. We're talking about the most powerful man in the world attacking and trying to destroy people who get in his way, people who have no power whatsoever. If we want to talk about a violation of Torah values, and we want to show where Trump's cruelty is most obvious and most unforgivable in my mind, I suggest we start with those specific tweets. They epitomize to me the things that Torah Jews must reject even though, in the scheme of things, these are not major issues in the political landscape. Again, I want to thank Rabbi Moskowitz for engaging in this respectful conversation. We need to remember that even as we disagree, we're ultimately still members of the same team. We might disagree and disagree strongly on how to get there, but both Rabbi Moskowitz and I clearly are looking out for the welfare, security, and success of Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, and Torah Yisrael. With that, I'm pleased to present my interview with Rabbi Moskowitz. Rabbi Yecheskel Moskowitz, thank you very much for being my guest today on the Orthodox Conundrum. I appreciate your coming. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to have you on the show because recently your name has appeared quite prominently in uh, several issues, both on social media and in an article. 
most recently and in particular regarding the National Council of Young Israel dinner, which I believe took place on Sunday, March 31st. You were the chairman of that dinner. Before we get to the specific issue that I wanted to talk to you about, what is your background in Israeli and American politics? Well, first of all, I grew up on the lap of my grandfather, the late Dr. Irving Moskowitz. I was very close with him um, before he became ill with Alzheimer's. I spent countless of hours talking with him about Israeli politics, about American politics. As you probably know, he was very, very involved in communal activism, both here in the United States and in Eretz Yisrael. Um, he was very close with Menachem Begin. He started BB off at the beginning of his career. And he was always trying to push a, um, I would say, a Jabotinsky-esque mindset within the state of Israel. And he therefore would encourage and work tirelessly to promote that agenda, both here in the United States and in Israel. And growing up, in his, I guess you could say, in, in in his hemisphere, so to speak, truly had an impact on myself and on my personal ideological viewpoints on these issues. The reason that your name came up this week, there was a JTA article later on, the Times of Israel also published it over the past couple of days. It describes this Young Israel dinner, the article is written by Ben Sales, as, quote, mostly a tribute to Donald Trump. And I wanted to ask if you agree with that characterization. So I think that's unfair to say, to be honest, just because that the first part of the program, I guess you could say, was about 20 minutes. And yes, it had a predominantly Republican pro-Trump slant, but that was mainly focused due to the fact that Trump has been so pro-Israel and has been fighting um, vigilantly against anti-Semitism here, in, which is a growing threat in the United States. He just um, actually appointed Elon Carr. Um, to be the ambassador for anti-Semitism, who I consider a friend and is working really hard on this issue. Um, he's appointed Paul Packer to the preservation of, of American heritage, God, who's really working tirelessly to safeguard Jewish heritage as well as American heritage. And the Jewish community should have a lot of satov through the Trump administration. Albeit with that said, the main focus of the program, which took up 40 minutes of the program, was our World War II veterans, which were specifically... World War II veterans that actually are young Israel members. That was something that I insisted on. I did not insist on the 40 minutes, but when we started realizing that each single World War II vet had 45 minutes of footage, and this was pretty much as every World War II vet that we honored told me, this was the highlight of their life. We made that decision that we had it to we had to showcase a 10 minute video of each single one of them, and this was. For you have these 99-year-old young Israel members who fought for America against fascism and socialism. That is something that I find really inspirational. I would hope every young Israel member would find inspirational. And that was the main focus of the program. Following that, every single one of the honorees, besides four, I guess you could say, two of them, Charles Gucciardo and Dan Eberhardt, who are Gentiles, Every one of the honorees are young Israel members and are predominantly featured in their young Israel synagogues and are very active in their communities. We honor young, two young Israel rabbis, Rabbi Schoenfeld, and I believe it was Rabbi Klein. And the fact that, unfortunately, to be honest, and we're learning from our mistakes, the fact that the, young, that the veteran portion of the program was so long took away from 
the actual program portion that had to do with all of our communities that took another hour and a half or so. And I apologize for that. But the bottom line is, is that we were trying really much to feature the communities as much as possible. Well, in that case, why is it that Ben Sales characterized it as mostly a tribute to Donald Trump, which you say, and it sounds as though it's accurate, that's pretty unfair. That was a small portion. In what sense was that a part of the program? I believe that because that statements that I made, which I believe are true about having a car set up to, to President Trump. And I believe the fact that we, our keynote speaker was Kevin McCarthy, who the reason why we featured him was because that he's been really at the forefront of pushing this uh, fight against the anti-Semites in Congress. So therefore, we felt that it was important to have him speak about this issue. He's been working together with Lee Zeldin on push, pushing through Congress, albeit it won't be pushed through because the majority won't vote on it. H.R. 72, which actually does condemn anti-Semitism, unlike, unlike the embarrassing bill that the Democrats pushed through. And we felt that he should be there. We did invite Democrats um, like Grace Mang, Elliot Engel, Josh Gottheimer were actually invited. We were hoping that they would come. I believe that as soon as they saw that our keynote would be Kevin McCarthy, because they did ask us who would be the keynote, they declined. And that's an unfortunate situation where we live in America right now, where the politics are so polarizing that when it comes to an event, the only people who are willing to come and grace us with their presence are Republicans, but not Democrats, because that for them, it's a one-way street. One of the dominant themes in the recent APAC conference and the goal of many American Zionists over the years is ensuring that support for Israel remains bipartisan. And you're saying that you invited Democrats and therefore you weren't openly courting Republicans per se. But do you worry that people who are trying actively to promote the Republican Party as being somewhat synonymous with American Zionism are somehow undermining this goal of bipartisan consensus of being pro-Israel? It's a very interesting question. I think that it's a very important question that people should be asking. And I think that the answer is rather simple. I think that the bipartisan element of pro-Israel activism should remain bipartisan. However, I think that the reality on the ground is dictating that it's the Democrats who are choosing to not be bipartisan about this issue. I think that the Democrats are recognizing that the, the districts of Omar, Talib, and AOC are not pro-Israel. And therefore, if they want to be able to attract those donors, they are going to have to pick a side. I don't know if you are, you live in Beit Shemesh, I don't know how aware you are of the situation here, but the more liberal progressive you are, the more anti-Israel and pro-BDS you are. And when you're dealing with the Democratic Party, the NCC, they have to make a decision in their strategy which voter are they going to go after? And I think that based on the reactive current actions of the, the majority, you see that they're clearly going to be siding with the more liberal, um, progressive elements of their community that are pro-BDS and anti-Israel and look at Israel's um, sovereignty over Judea and Samaria and so on as pure occupation, which as a rabbi, you know that the first Rashi in, in, in Parshas Barashas clearly would dictate otherwise. Now, let me ask you about something that you said, or at least you were quoted as saying at the dinner. You said that for the first time in our history, the Jewish people have a real friend in the White House. President Trump is the most benevolent leader the Jewish people have ever known, and there are 2,000 years in the diaspora, believe me. Now, do you really think that other presidents, like, for example, Ronald Reagan, were not friends of the Jewish people? Is that is that true? Yeah, well, people who are actually in the Reagan administration, who I'm friends with, who I do consulting work for them, 
told me themselves that Reagan was not pro-Israel and he actually couldn't stand Shamir. So the the fact that the many other administrations, both Republican and Democrat ones, made certain promises like moving the embassy to Jerusalem um, and never fulfilled those promises. I remember George W. Bush making that promise and never happening, although I couldn't vote then. The first time I voted was for John McCain. I remember my grandfather being furious about the fact that George Bush made all kinds of promises to him. My grandfather was giving big political money even back then, and he never fulfilled those promises. The, that does not mean that I'm an anti-Busher like some Republicans today. I Look, I respect all presidents. I respect Bill Clinton, despite the fact that he has a pretty colorful history. Just because of the fact that he was a president of this country, I respect Jimmy Carter. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that President Trump is a true friend of the Jewish people, from my perspective. And I think that the reason why he's such a good friend of the Jewish people is not only because that he likes Jews, but also because that he realizes that being pro-Israel actually serves American interests, which I think is a very is like a paradigm shift on the whole perspective on on his foreign policy. But Chesky, aren't you conflating a little bit when you talk about Reagan disliking Shamir? Are you conflating approval of the Likud or a particular prime minister with being pro-Israel. In other words, Shamir isn't no, Israel. No, he no, was not, a prime not, minister. Not, not at all. Not at all. I just think that if you look at Ben Hecht's um, Child of a Century, which is a great audio autobiography, and I wish that everybody would read it, he, he does lay blame on the labor Zionists for putting the country in the trajectory that it was that led to the Oslo Accords, and he foresaw all of the problems that we have today. I think that there's definitely room for debate on what, on the two-state solution and on the Palestinian humanitarian crises. I think that these are all very important issues, but at the end of the day, I'm just speaking as an individual in my own personal perspective, is that at the end of the day, we see how one party and one trail of thought within the labor Zionist movement, their mindset was a mindset that I believe did not lead Israel into a good place and led to the, all the bloodshed that we have today. And that is something that as Jews and people who live in Eretz Israel, such as yourself, definitely, I hope, would recognize. I would say that even those who would agree with you would certainly argue that people who are labor supporters or, or people in the labor government were obviously pro-Israel. I, I assume you would agree with that well, fact. Well, let me flip the question on you for a second. Do you think it's, are you pro-Israel if you believe that we should go back to 1967 borders, which would literally be Auschwitz borders? Well, there's a reason. You, well, you just, you, 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 you loaded the question, though. If you say which would literally be Auschwitz borders, obviously no, but that's already a debate. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with it, but you're making an assumption okay, that those are Auschwitz borders. If someone disagrees with that, then he still can be pro-Israel and say he thinks it's a good thing for Israel. Yeah, no, I think that, Definitely, there has been a long ongoing debate about the two-state solution versus the one-state state solution, which I would call sovereignty. I think that people like um, Martin Sherman, Yoram Ettinger, and others have definitely showcased a rather compelling argument that such a reality would be bad for Israel. I think that the people who are pushing such an agenda definitely think that they are pro-Israel. But I think that they are not living in a reality that 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 is, I guess, that would coalesce itself with the one on the ground. I'm saying we have to recognize 
that the Palestinian Authority, as well as Hamas, has been raising their children and the next generation to hate us. And you have Mickey Mouse teaching young Palestinians that the Jews, that Jews are the devil. I find it very hard to believe that there will ever be a uh, some sort of semblance of coexistence. And that's a very unfortunate reality. And I certainly agree with you that coexistence at the moment seems to be a faraway dream. And I am not in favor of going back to 67 borders. I do question whether we can call people who advocate that inherently anti-Israel if they think it's a good idea. They could be wrong, but that doesn't make them anti-Israel. Yeah, but you know, I agree with you. And I think that as long as we have a spirited debate with mutual respect and understanding that we're all here trying to do the same thing, that we're all trying to safeguard Israel and its interests, then that's fine. Look, I have had wonderful discussions with liberal progressives including a gay reconstructionist rabbi and i have these kind of conversations all the time and i relish them because that when i meet people who are actually willing to be respectful and are willing to have some sort of constructive debate that it helps enrich my own views and helps strengthen my perspective on the issues let me ask something which might be controversial and i'm asking it not because i have any idea if this is something which you do or occurred at the dinner it might have been implied from that article by ben sales I'm curious what you think about this in terms of Trump supporting among Orthodox Jews. So this is one of the issues that, full disclosure, bothers me. There's a difference between supporting Trump as a president and agreeing with his policies and saying his policies are good and supporting the individual, Mr. President Donald Trump. And what I mean is this. Even suppose someone says Donald Trump's policies vis-a-vis Israel, vis-a-vis anything, are wonderful. At the same time, the individual person we're talking about has let's you, you describe uh, President Clinton as having a, a colorful history. I think we can say somewhat of the same for President Trump. More than that, I would say beyond a colorful history, and I'm going beyond the the I'm not going to call it allegations, but the recordings of bragging about groping, etc. There are certain types of of midot that we would say as religious Jews that we simply can't celebrate, we can't accept, such as what a lot of people would describe as his bullying tactics. An example which came up only in the past couple of weeks is when the General Motors plant in Ohio was closed, Donald Trump, the most powerful person on earth, criticized publicly on Twitter the union head who had written to him twice asking him to help that it shouldn't close. In other words, the most powerful man on earth is hurting a local auto worker to save his reputation. The same thing happened with the carrier plant. I'm using these as a simple example. The carrier plant, before he was inaugurated, when in Indiana, he tried to save some jobs, which he did save, but he said and announced it was more jobs than he actually did save. And when the local union head called him on that, and he was calling him on it accurately, President Trump said, I actually have the quote here, Chuck Jones, who was president of the United Steel Workers 1999, has done a terrible job representing workers. No wonder companies flee the country. If United Steel Workers 1999 was any good, they would have kept those jobs in Indiana. So here we have a person who's acting with cruelty. I don't see there's any other way. We're, because he's powerful and this person is just a local guy and he's being punished for telling the truth because he was hurting Trump's reputation. How can we celebrate a person like that? You might say we can't, but how can we celebrate the person even if if we approve of his policies? That's an excellent question. I think that's definitely valid criticism of the president and his behavior. I think that ultimately we have to be asking ourselves this question um, on a regular basis. And... We have to recognize that at the end of the day, what the president has done for the Jewish people is beyond any measure. I think that the Jewish people in, in, uh, in 
Parsa Madai definitely appreciated Ahasuerus, despite of his colorful um, background, right? It wasn't something that that they seemed to take into consideration. They knew what his what he who he was and what he did and how he behaved. At the same time, they recognized that he gave over to Esther and Mordechai the ability to protect themselves. You know, we know the Medrash says that Ahasuerus wanted to do what Haman wanted to do, if not more than that. And the, he just didn't have the guts to do so. Now, obviously, I don't believe that Trump is anywhere near Ahasuerus when it comes to his relationship with the Jewish people. On the contrary, I think he loves Jews. I've interacted with him several times, and I think that one would be surprised if they interacted with him on a personal level the way I did, you would would wonder, how is it possible this is the same man who's doing all that tweeting and doing all the, what you would call bullying, how is it possible the same man who comes across so humble and down to earth, really a salt of the earth type of guy? I mean, I've interacted with the president. I once had an eight minute conversation with him and I walked away with my brother who was with me and we were both like, this is, how is this the president? doesn't make any sense. He's such a simple guy. He was just having a normal conversation with us. Like we were his best buddies for the last 40 years. And I think that, and this is, I guess, how I rationalize it. I guess that when you look at it from my perspective, maybe it makes more sense. I think that Trump has a strategy in his tweeting. And I think that he's, he's calculating very calculated in his actions in the sense that he's trying to voice the frustrations of all of these people who are his voters. Every time that he tweets, he is riling his base who feel that frustration and cheer him on. And there's a strategy to it. Now, is it a strategy that's the best strategy? Um, as far as a Jew, I probably should not use that strategy because that but at the end of the day, it works for him and it wins him elections. And as long as he's winning elections, clearly there is a positive trajectory for Israel and for the Jewish people. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, but we're still getting back to even if, if things can be heard, that you say that might be a more successful strategy. I'm talking about the individual who does it. In other words, if you're going to go and trash, and I'm using this simply because it's emblematic of a certain style, you're going to trash a local guy who has no power because it makes you look better. I don't think there's any other way of reading this. Simply in terms of look, wearing a Trump keeper, how can I we do that? Look, I definitely tell my children that at the end of the day, we have to recognize that Gaim will be Gaim. And they don't have a Torah and 613 mitzvahs. They don't have Musar to help show them the way. There definitely are many upstanding individuals who are able to, I guess, adhere to a certain standard that they come to it either on their own or through their Athenian principles. I mean, Ben Shapiro just wrote an amazing book that talks about this, the, the amalgamation of Jerusalem and Athens, and how Benjamin Franklin had a whole system of how he would work on himself. And if I believe correctly, they, the legend goes that Cheshbon Nefesh is based off of his uh, calendar. So there definitely is room for growth for everybody. I do believe that the president really cares about America, and I think he really cares about this country, and I think he also really cares about the Jewish people, and he really cares about Israel. So there's a lot of things that one can be critical of, but at the same time, if a Democrat, how colorful their history was, would do half of the things that he did, we, we would find a bipartisan census within the Jewish community 
that would be hailing him as the Tzadik Hador and as the Chassid HaUmas HaOlam. And I think that particularly because that Trump is a Republican and because that he is this colorful person that no one ever assumed he would ever win the election. And obviously HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the one who's Mamlich Mulachim, and put him in this position, it upsets a lot, a lot of people. I, I'm saying like there are people out there who I respect. I'll just give you one example. I read Yehuda Mirsky's book on Rav Cook, and I've read all of Mark Shapiro's books. I have a huge affinity for history. And these are people who, for many, many years, I respected, who had a very acute sense of history. And then today, in this day and age, I just see how they bash the president all day long on Twitter. And it makes me, it just, it, it, I'll be honest with you, it frustrates me. Because the first thought for these people who have such an acute understanding of history, they would know better that there's such a concept called Shtadlanas, and there's such a concept of working with the government of, that we live with. And yes, we could, if people, people obviously have a dis- disagree with me, even within the Haredi camp, people like Eitan Kobri bash the president all day long. I know him personally, and every time I, wrote him, I write him a letter that I think that he's making a critical error, because at the end of the day, we have to recognize that he is the one who's making these decisions. But at the end of the day, the decisions that he's making help the Jewish community, both in the United States and in Israel. And we have never had anybody do uh, even a, a quarter or a fraction of what he's done for us. And the fact that there's such a lack of a car in our community, to me, I find it baffling. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. I can disagree with you. I still think we have to make a big distinction between celebrating the person, but that's okay. I want to move on to a different question. It was mentioned in the article that you complained about the leftist progressive tikkun olam ideology, and you put up a social media post where the group Torah Trump's Hate, which is an anti-Trump group and is quite progressive, I believe, in his politics. It's a group of people. It's a lot. It's not a uniform group. It's a Facebook group. But you said that Torah Trump's Hate bears some responsibility for the shooting in Pittsburgh last October. So I wanted to know why you think that. What, what was behind that post, which got a lot of attention? Can I ask you a question? Have you ever read uh, Mark Shapiro's biography about Arbisheli um, Yaakov Weinberg? Yes, I have. In fact, Mark Shapiro was even a guest on this show about a year ago. Oh, that's great. Mark and I used to be close. I mean, at this point, I, I don't know if he would be. We don't haven't really spoken in years. But there was a point where I listened to every single one of his historical lectures. And I read all of his books, as I said, and it definitely had an impact on me. And to be honest, it helped create the persona that I am today. One of the things that really stood out to me um, in the book was how Rabbi Chilak of Weinberg, the Swedish, was clearly very vocal about how Jews cause anti-Semitism. We've seen similar sentiment that can be found in Torah Musser and in the Ksavim of altar of Kelm, that Jews, unfortunately, behave in such a way that takes that ace of Sonaliaco and inflames it. When you have the, when you create a, such a, a situation where Judaism is synonymous with liberal progressivism, that gives, I guess you could say, as an amasla to the anti-Semites who hate us anyway, because it's inherent within their blood and they can't help themselves to have, a, have an excuse to act on their hatred. It, everybody knows that the guy, who, the, the disgusting animal who shot up that synagogue in Pittsburgh, Hashem Yikom Dama, specifically targeted that synagogue because that it was a, I guess what they could tell, it was a center of activism for Hayes. Now, Hayes has been pushing 
a liberal progressive agenda for many years, and it obviously served its purpose after the Holocaust, and it had a very important purpose. But today it's become a center to assist illegal immigrants. And when you create a situation where you have those who are promoting this agenda and calling it Judaism, then automatically Jews are going to be targeted. And we find that Jews who are who identify as Jews and who actually dress like Jews are also targeted. We have a situation like that right now in Crown Heights and in Brooklyn where there's an uptake in anti-Semitism, and that's not coming from white nationalists. That's coming from locals. And honestly, the reason why that's happening is not only because that there's an inherent anti-Semitic, I guess you could call it, I don't even know, I don't want to call it a gene because that's not what it is, but there's that Asa son of Yaakov is inherent in, the, in, the, in them. There's nothing they can do about it. But at the end of the day, when you have Jewish landlords and Jewish um, uh, store owners and so on, that I've seen it with my own eyes, mistreat Gentiles that, that work for them and, and talk down to them and are not nice to them, then yes, it's going to increase anti-Semitism. And it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. But can um, we can we apply that equally to criticism of left wing Jewish groups? In other words, if having a progressive agenda can lead to anti semitism, why can't we? We know that anti semitism is a phenomenon, unfortunately, of all aspects of the political world, left and right. Why can't we say that it's equally true by pushing a conservative agenda will increase anti semitism from the left wing? I definitely agree with you. And just to answer your upcoming question, yeah, I think that it could be that the dinner, albeit unintentionally came across in such as, and I think it was because the media is portraying it that way as such a right-wing movement, specifically pro-Trump. Yes, the idea is that for sure that we can, we have to definitely try to come off as balanced, but at the same time, we do have to show appreciation for those who are, who are our friends. And that's how APAC has always worked. And that's how my grandfather always worked. My grandfather supported both Democrats and Republicans who were with, who are going to push forward his agenda that was pro-Jewish and pro-Israel and pro-American. My grandfather made, people say Scoop Jackson Democrats. My grandfather made Scoop Jackson. The historical fact that my grandfather took Scoop from the beginning of his career made him into the amazing person that he was and well-known that he was. Grandfather was there all along the way pushing him forward. I just was going through his stuff and I found a special... Um, letter from Scoop that was thanking him for being there all along. So we for sure, and we currently do support Democrats who are on our team. But at the same time, when I support Trump and when I support Republicans, I do it as an individual. I never do it as a, as a, and if I do it as a community, I just do it as a community. I don't do it as synonymous with Judaism. I don't say that my Judaism dictates that I have to be supportive of so-and-so agenda. I could say that, yeah, as a Jew, I think that being pro-life is important. As a Jew, I, religious liberty is important, therefore I'm going to support that. But I would never say that the Torah endorses Donald Trump, because that's insane. In the same token, you have the other side, which literally are Messiah the Torah and are Megalit Panim Torah finding sources to push their agenda, and we don't really find that on the right so much. There are maybe, I mean, there was... Well, I mean, that, in the article, there, there was someone, in the article, there was somebody at the dinner who was quoted as saying exactly that. I do appreciate what you're saying, and it wasn't you who was quoted, it was somebody else who said, essentially, Orthodox Judaism leads naturally into the Republican Party and towards supporting Trump. 
I'm not quoting it. It was but essentially that, per- that idea, right? Yeah, that, that, person, that, that person is a right to his opinion. I think that every person individually has to make that decision. I'm sure that there are many Orthodox Jews out there who will who can argue from today till tomorrow that that uh, socialism is minat Torah. I happen to not think that way. I think that Rabbi um, Rabbi Lapin has written extensively on this how how the Torah is definitely not a, a socialist idea and is all, all, all about people owning property and their responsibilities to the cloud are based on the individual Minat Torah and not forced through a quote-unquote communal authority. But at the same time, there are definitely holes in that argument because you could start saying that there's the Otar Bez and Shemitah, so that there's a lot of discussions on this, and I'm definitely... I hope we won't get into the right. nitty-gritty it's, of that on this that, that's a, that That's an entirely different topic, but it's it's, it's worthy of discussion in a different context. For but, sure. I would love to do that in a different period of time. So <laughs> we're, we're almost out of time. I want to ask you just one more question. I know this is not fair to ask you because, as you emphasized to me off the air, you are not a representative of young Israel. So I'm not asking you as a representative of young Israel, but I'm curious what you think about the young Israel statement endorsing Netanyahu's brokering of the mafdal Otsma yehudi merger. And the reason I ask that is because it seemed to me that among the major Orthodox organizations in the United States, the Young Israel was the only one that came out that I saw, the only one that came out in favor of it. I'm wondering why, perhaps you don't know, but why the Young Israel would feel the need to do that as opposed to remaining outside the fray. As you probably know, here in Israel, there is a very mixed feeling about it. It's not as though there's the Orthodox position at all. People, particularly from the Yeshiva and the Gush, Haaretzion, have been very against it and say, if that means you're out of the government, then you're out of the government. We have our principles. So I'm curious, why do you think the Young Israel felt the need to enter that particular discussion and argument when other organizations weren't doing so? So I think that that is an amazing question, and I'm very happy that you asked it because it goes back to what we were speaking about before. We have to recognize that for every action, there is a reaction. When you had the entire liberal progressive Jewish apparatus attacking Benjamin Netanyahu over this move, there needs to be a counter voice. There needs to be a counterbalance. Otherwise, we will all be guilty by association. I believe that, and this is my personal opinion again, that by all of these liberal progressive Jewish organizations coming out against it, like you said, the Gush were against it, but I don't think I saw anywhere from the Gush crowd that there was a actual press release or anything against it. Although that's true. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was a letter of several Rabbanim. There, there was, yes. They were against. It was written There out. was, right? Yeah. I, I, think I, I think I saw that. So like, I think that that's a mistake because then it undermines Israel's democracy. I believe that the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that they are allowed to run. They clearly deemed that it was, and this is a liberal progressive Supreme Court, mind you, they deemed that this party is not a Kahana party because Kahana, as we both know, was banned from the Knesset. So the Supreme Court ruled that they were allowed to run. They allow others to run. It would be a political calculus to for Bibi to push forward such a merger because that way he would not lose seats and then we wouldn't end up with a center-left government. The young Israel was simply defending Israel's democracy and the fact that if, if they are allowed to run, then BB is allowed to work such a thing out. I think that it's foolish to say, well, if we're out of the government, we're out of the government. That's just to me like this makes absolutely no sense. I'm sorry. And it's like the same thing, like don't vote for Trump because he has a bad personality. Like as we both know, I don't feel that way at all. My whole agenda, my whole philosophy, honestly, is about eye on the prize and about the agenda. And with that said, the, the fact that Ballot are allowed to run and 
so no one says boo about that. And it's, it's funny that suddenly when Osma comes out and they run, everybody gets upset about it. All at the same time, that's what a democracy is about. And we have to respect Israel's democracy. And I think that doing anything we can to undermine Israel's democracy, rightly or like directly or inadvertently, hurts our, our, our whole, the whole perspective of the world towards us. And honestly, it increases anti-Semitism and empowers our enemies. When you have Rabbanin who come out attacking this, don't think for a second that the liberal progressives aren't going to take that letter and publish it around the world. But you see, even the rabbis say that Israel is bad. And I've seen it done many times. And there's Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro from Bayswater, who's known to be an uh, ardently no, ardent anti-Israel guy. He wrote this book, uh, Broken Wagon or some Empty Wagon or whatever it was. And I've had many ideological debates with him. And I always tell him, you don't realize that there are anti-Semitic Arabs out there who take your writings and take your books and use it as proof to push their own nefarious agenda. And therefore, the young Israel, I believe, I understood their president correctly, felt like they had to come out and defend Israel, defend Israel's democracy. Because that's what the end of the day young Israel has always done. There hasn't been a period where the young Israel has not been political over its 109-year history. If anybody could show me a five-year period where the young Israel was not politically involved, I would be very surprised because uh, going through their historical documents and their archives is definitely not the case. And therefore, just to take a, a simple, simple statement, it was not an endorsement of Otsma. However, with that said, you know the media, which is dishonest in general, portrayed it as such. And that was a shanda that that happened. Because the young Israel was just saying, Israel's right to a democracy, and Bibi has a right to make a government. And just like Gantz will sit with Balad in his government, and no one would say boo, Bibi has a right to sit with Otsma. If they're a, if they, and, and at the end of the day, we have to allow ideas to prosper. That's a real democracy. Well, I, I don't, don't want Israel I, to be a military state. I, I, I don't want, I think you do. No, I, I think we all, I think we all agree that we don't want Israel to be a military state. I'll just point out in that particular issue, though, saying that the Gush rabbis who signed that letter or wrote those letters shouldn't have written so. That's also saying that if we're afraid of anti-Semitism, we can't allow the marketplace of ideas to really come to the fore. They weren't arguing that the Supreme Court should ban them. They were arguing that the Mafdal, the whatever the National Religious Party's official name is now, as the National Religious Party with a very specific ideology, they shouldn't merge with them. That's a violation of their ideals. That was more the idea, as opposed to saying... Okay, and therefore they can take their vote and they could go to the Amina Chadash or whoever they feel comfortable with. That's their right. I think that at the end of the day, you have to use your voice at the at the voting booth, or as they say in Israel, bakalpi. Right? That's where it's going to matter. That's where we're going to end up seeing the results of what the people in the country want. I think I just I, I just I'll point you to a um, wonderful article that was just recently released in the Jerusalem Post that Ellie Piaps pointed me to, where it says that none of the parties, not Kaholavan. And not Halikud, no one is talking about the two-state solution because they're clearly, in the Israeli public, public's eyes, it's not something that is popular and people don't want to talk about it. And that, to me, I believe, is a very positive development of the Israeli people that they're starting to start, they're starting to think about a country of the Jewish people in their Jewish homeland and starting to take, perhaps, responsibility for the issues that we face, such as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and in Judea and Samaria, 
And I'm actually looking forward to some of the creative solutions that we come up with to deal with these issues. And hopefully there will be able to be coexistence of both Arabs and Jews in this Jewish state of Israel and the land of Israel. I have to say that a lot of what you said is not in line with the way I believe, but I really appreciate genuinely your talking with me and having a respectful discussion together about this. And I think the way forward for all sides is for us to be able to talk about these things honestly without getting upset and being able to discuss these issues, allowing the marketplace of ideas, as we said earlier, to really flourish. So Rabbi Yechesko Moskowitz, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for your time. What do you think? Please write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thank you for joining me. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.